sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hey, uh, I'm Nate Larkin here with your friend and mine, Aaron Porter. We have a great guest on tap. Uh, in the meantime, just to catch up quickly before we get rolling, anything new in your life there, Aaron? Oh, I wasn't expecting that question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. My my uh, oldest son has visited this week uh, for a few days and drove away this morning. So mm-hmm. it was nice to have him in the house. He has not been in the house for two years. Wow. Actually, the the last time he was here was at the time that my marriage was ending. And mm-hmm. so that was told to him on the day he left the last time oh, wow. he was here. Wow. 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 So it, it was him coming back to a house with a whole different feel, mm-hmm. uh, different furniture. And it was some great conversations navigating through all of that weirdness. Wow. Wow. Maybe that was a deeper answer than you were expecting, but that's no, that's, that's a, been my that's last few answer. days. Mine's mine's really shallow. You want to know what's new in our house? Your barbecue? No, no. And well, we I do have a we had a hot tub delivered. That's at back, but actually the it's not hooked up yet, but it's there. The big news is yesterday we we hired a house cleaner, somebody a lady wow. to come in and clean the house. Okay. We've never ever done this before. Uh, a terrific woman. We it, we connected right away and had a wonderful conversation. Although Allie was up at four in the morning cleaning, Been cleaning the house to get ready for her to come, so she wasn't judged. Yeah. Yes. Oh exactly. my gosh. Yeah. 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 And and I was off buying. You know, suddenly our vacuum cleaner wasn't quite good enough, so I had to go buy another one, and I bought a new mop bucket, a new mop, and. And, uh, but the house Man, looks, this, you know, this, house- this effort to reduce the stress <laughs> of cleaning has sure caused you guys a lot of activity. So, so, uh, Myra's going to be coming, you know, once a week uh, to clean, but I'm wondering how long this pattern is going to persist that Allie and I are going to have to pre-clean, uh, before Myra gets here. I, I hope not long. I mean, I remember... Let's see who was being born. I think when Abby was being born, mm-hmm. we had arranged to take the older boys to my parents, and then we were going mm-hmm. to go to go out to eat, have dinner, because we had a scheduled C-section for her, and then the next morning, go into the hospital, all rested, mm-hmm. and then this lady texted and said, I'm coming over to bring you a little gift, oh. and... My ex went and cleaned, and she said, I'm not coming in. She's like, just in case. And she starts cleaning the house. Mm -hmm. The kids are in the car waiting. The lady shows up, Mm -hmm. and her water breaks. Obviously, they tell women, right, if you want to go into labor, just clean the house. Yeah, right, right, Totally happened. Luckily, the kids were already in the car, so we just took them to my parents and went to the hospital. But uh, I don't, the pre-cleaning thing, man, I don't get it at all. I don't have that compulsion. (laughs) Oh. Well, Well, that's exciting. 
something new happening. And you know what? I grew up on the Brady Bunch, and that uh, lady that kept their house was just a part of the family. So I That's expect right. it'll be intimate and beautiful. Okay. Oh, well, she's invited us to her church, so uh, we're looking forward. We're gonna go. We're gonna go visit the church. See nice. see how that works out. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we got a we got a great guest this week, Justin Schwind, doing a bang up job, lining up these guests, getting them booked. Uh, this is one where I'm a little embarrassed. He, we were actually supposed to interview this guy a couple weeks ago, and I completely missed it. Didn't even see it on the calendar. Well, I saw it, but, and I was an hour off, so I logged oh, on an hour after it was supposed to have started. Okay, uh, so we both missed it. For totally different reasons. And this and guy is very so gracious. nice and so yeah. understanding, so gracious that he rescheduled. We're going to have that conversation when we return on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. How fortunate we are to have with us as a guest this week, a clinical social worker and a therapist from the great state of California, also an author, the author of, among other titles, the book, It's Not About the Sex, Moving from Isolation to Intimacy After After Sexual Addiction. His name's Andrew Suskind, joining us from Santa Monica, California. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. It's great to be here, and I appreciate the the kind uh, words already. Thanks for the welcome. <laughs> I, I am sure that people get bored of us asking this question. Actually, I'm not sure of that. Uh, but anybody that ends up teaching people how to find intimacy uh, after sexual addiction, after sexual brokenness, like there's a story that leads someone to this. It's not like on career day their senior year in high school, they're like, let's see, plumber or sex therapist. It just doesn't come up. Which, by the way, I was told I would make a great egg gatherer. I kid you not, that came up on my assessment. But I'm sure I would make a great egg gatherer. So how did you end up where you are with this passion for this work? Well, first of all, I don't know much about egg gathering, but I appreciate the idea. Um, But... Honestly, I, I, I believe I was born into this profession. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When people ask me, when did you know you wanted to be a therapist? I sometimes say in utero. And mm-hmm. it's sort of a joke, but it's not exactly a joke because I was born into a family that had a lot of problems. And mm-hmm. a family that I believe underneath it all really loved each other, but on the surface had a lot of trouble loving one another. And so... To fast forward, addictions and compulsive behaviors were rampant in my family in different ways. And my particular outlet, my particular attempt to feel better was Mm -hmm. through compulsive sex. So that became a coping mechanism um, in my 20s. Um, I, I feel really, really grateful to have made a career from healing both myself and others. And that's where it all originated. Were you aware of your family's predilection to this, whether it was your parents or possibly siblings? When when did you become aware of that? Well, Mm -hmm. we know you were aware, maybe not conscious of it, but (laughs) okay, answer that however you want. That that just just became a confusing question. 
Is that a way of saying, Aaron, that as we're growing up as kids, for all we know, the family we're in is normal. And yeah. at some point, right? Because that's it. It's our, the only reality we have. Correct. And at some point, it begins to dawn on us that uh, this uh, there may be a better way to do things. So, yeah. With that as context, how do you answer Aaron's question? Sure. So I'm the fourth of four boys, and all of my brothers had various kinds of addictions. And Mm. so from an early, early age, I I knew that we were troubled, that that Mm. the family was just having a a rough time of it. My parents were unhappy. Mm. Um, My dad would end up getting really depressed and, and rageful at times. And, and my mom was just kind of in her own world. I, I won't go mm-hmm. into everything, but they, they just were distracted. And, mm-hmm. and I think my brothers were doing the best they knew how at the time, back in the 70s, to try and, and cope with a, a home that was really tense and mm-hmm. that was really um, argumentative and competitive and just a lot of isolation within a home of six people. It's, it's, it's mm. kind of ironic that you have six people in a home and yet everybody feels profoundly lonely. I'm, mm. I'm curious. I'm, I'm fascinated by what siblings learn from each other. We often talk about parents and kids and things that come from that. What was the age gap between you and your oldest brother? It was 10 years. So my brothers uh, are five, eight, and 10 years older. And, you know, I, I was the golden child, right? I actually tried mm-hmm. really, really hard to be happy and to make believe that everything was okay. And mm-hmm. underneath it all, it it was uh, there was a lot of misery, a lot of suffering. And so I would go out into the world to school. I would got straight A's until like maybe seventh or eighth grade. And I I actually was, I consider myself to be a heat-seeking missile. And what I mean by that is that I I would find families that would adopt me and I would Mm -hmm. find really great friends. I I was fortunate Mm -hmm. in that way. But our siblings are the closest DNA we have on the planet. And Mm -hmm. so whether I intended to do this or not, genetically and through other influences, I, I also learned what it meant to try and feel better through various activities, what, what, whether um, I was trying to feel more, whether I was trying to feel less, while I was trying mm-hmm. to feel different. But, but it was very difficult for me and for my family to, to, to really be comfortable in our own skin. Being mm-hmm. the golden child, did you feel pressure to try to help your mom or your dad? Like, what, what did that feel like within the house? Were you the one sure. to repair things that you saw being broken by siblings during their hard times? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was the one who tried to solve the problems, tried to make my mom happy, tried to rescue and save and 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 step in when, when conflict would come in. Eventually, I gave up, to tell you the truth. I would, I would just go to my room, shut the door, put on some music, and avoid the conflict, mm-hmm. which... Mm-hmm unfortunately became a bit of a pattern for me, conflict avoidance. But absolutely, it's, it's, it's complicated because the golden child is really um, usually the one that tries to make everything okay. And mm-hmm. at the same time, in a family like mine and many other families, it, it's just impossible. 
Hey, what are you hearing? Because I, I know you, being the oldest of 10, yeah. had a different but same kind of experience at that age. Well, certainly, yeah. Is, I had the, I, is that. Is that you dinging? Are you dinging, Nate? <laughs> I, I, I sure hope I'm not dinging. I put it on airplane mode. Oh, uh, sorry. Although it may just be my <laughs> sparkling personality that's doing that. The, the mic is picking it up. Uh yeah, you know, mine was different. I was uh, in some ways a surrogate spouse to my mom. I felt like that at times and also a surrogate parent to all my younger siblings. Mm -hmm. But still, yeah, growing up with a lot of responsibility in a home where the rules were very much don't feel, don't tell, don't think, right? So, uh, yeah, trying to manage the unmanageable and unaware of, I, I'm, I'm, taken by the fact that you, Andrew, used the word lonely to describe how you felt. And it's been my contention for a long time that that is probably the most common feeling for those of us who've fallen prey to compulsive sexual activity. Mm -hmm. The thing that we're most often trying to medicate. I don't know whether that's true or not. I know it's true for me and for a lot of the guys I've known. Loneliness, and there's another word that you use that I've not heard used an awful lot by uh, psychotherapists, uh, and, and that's brokenhearted. What do you mean when you talk about the brokenhearted? Mm. First of all, I just wanted to say that what you were sharing about your own family, it's interesting because even though you were the oldest, I was chronologically the baby of the family, and yet I was also in a position of being a surrogate parent Mm -hmm. And trying to somehow take care of everyone, so mm -hmm. it's it's yeah. so it doesn't always matter what the birth order is. But thank you for sharing that piece. Um, so brokenheartedness is, is a term I heard someone use years ago, and it really penetrated as as something that felt less pathologizing than trauma. Uh. Uh -huh. but, but it has to do with trauma, right? So, mm -hmm. so it doesn't matter whether it's something that was of a huge magnitude, like um, different types of abuse, um, mm -hmm. different types of neglect, that kind of thing, or whether it's something like a breakup, which sometimes people overlook and, and don't mm -hmm. understand how deeply impactful a breakup, a first breakup especially, can be. Um, mm -hmm. or divorce, or the loss of a pet, or grief in general. Mm -hmm. So so I really use the term brokenheartedness as a an umbrella for mm -hmm. what we all know, really. We all know when we've had our, our hearts broken. And so, like I said, to take it away from the clinical term uh, of, of trauma, although I use the word trauma quite a bit, uh, mm -hmm. I think brokenheartedness captures something that is very human and very universal. That's oh, that's that's important because you know the trauma word. We start to try to suss out and get to the nuances by big T and small T traumas and all these different things. Where yeah, that's a great umbrella term because okay, I I might not even feel comfortable calling certain things trauma in my early life, but I definitely experienced brokenheartedness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's, that's an easier bridge for some of us to cross 
to admit, yes, I have coped with brokenheartedness in, in different areas and different levels. So when did you, you're, you're moving towards, I'm going to be a therapist, and then somewhere along the line, you really focused on sexual brokenness. Mm. Was that early on, or did that come later? It's a great question, because my own compulsive behaviors were around sex, okay? And so I consider myself to be in recovery from compulsive sexual behavior, and I've been in recovery Mm -hmm. since the early 90s. And when I think about that, it, it really... It's just part of my life, and it's part of my life both professionally and it's part of my life personally. And I feel so fortunate to have a team around me. I have a therapist. I have a sponsor. I have mm-hmm. um, God. I call um, a power greater than myself God. And and I, that's like the trifecta for me, right? So yeah. as a therapist, um I just feel like I get to learn more clinically and academically what what it means to to heal. And mm-hmm. so I'm fortunate enough to be able to go to the office four days a week and um, and see what what happens with with clients who are willing uh, to work on these issues. Well, we're always curious with people who have done this for a, a while, who have been on this journey of helping others, what you have seen change since you started helping others, and what things that you look at and have felt like, no, we're missing the boat on this, we <laughs> need to see see this differently. Thanks. Another Another fantastic question. So the biggest difference is that Back in the 80s and early 90s, you know, I, I believe wholeheartedly in what Patrick Harnes uh, brought to the field of sex addiction. Yeah. I mean, he's the pioneer. He, he really opened up a huge conversation that was so necessary. But what was missing at the time was there wasn't a whole lot of talk about what brought people to those behaviors. So the trauma, the mm-hmm. brokenheartedness, the attachment ruptures the nervous system dysregulation. Um, mm-hmm. So nowadays, where so, we've been... So real quick, so back then, <clears throat> it just started with the behavior and went, how do we stop the behavior? So here's step one, and we're going to move forward. And you're talking and, about we're starting to move backwards to fix it was, forward. Yeah, and if I'm not, unless I'm missing something, I got started in recovery in the late 90s, but very much a 12-step model and the language that we were using then almost exclusively was character defect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we were confronting character defect, but trauma or brokenheartedness. Oh, we would talk some about shame, but uh, trauma and brokenheartedness was not a part of the conversation back then. Correct. At least not where I was. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So back then, <laughs> back in mm-hmm. the dark ages of the, the 80s and early 90s, you're right. It was it was mostly focused on behavioral and cognitive behavioral approaches. And mm-hmm. and so it was mostly helping people stop the behaviors. And and there were some some pioneers some fo- focus on okay, when somebody stops the behavior, then what? You know, how can somebody mm-hmm. achieve a more purposeful life? How can somebody 
have a, a more satisfying sexual way of expressing themselves. So, so there was talk about it. It's not that it wasn't happening, but I think in the last 25 years, it's, it's been an amazing evolution because now there's a whole major focus on sexual health, which we can talk about more in a moment. There's more uh, um, focus on nervous system regulation, which is mm-hmm. huge, the interpersonal neurobiologists. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I don't consider myself to be in that uh, elite category, but but I've done a lot of training in uh, regulating the nervous system. And, and I believe that it's such a necessary part of, of recovery and healing. Mm, mm, mm. And, and then attachment has really taken off. You know, uh, attachment theory has been around several decades, several decades. But then someone uh, wrote a book, for example, in the early 2000s, I believe, or late 90s, um, about attachment as, an, sorry, addiction as an attachment disorder. Mm-hmm. And so we're yeah. talking about how <clears throat> excuse me, how attachment is part of what's necessary. So some of you, you might be familiar with the um, the TED Talk, uh, The Opposite of Addiction is Connection. Yes, right? yes, yeah. And it's beautiful. It's, I, I find it so inspiring. And, and we didn't talk like that 25, mm-hmm. 30 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So now mm-hmm. we're having this whole new dialogue with sexual health, with nervous system regulation, with attachment. It's it's a beautiful thing. And we have a long way to go. There's a lot of folks still suffering out there. But this is really, really exciting times because we're moving in the direction, I believe, of deeper healing. Do you think some of this came, I mean, I'm just thinking early 80s, 90s, this is pre-internet, back when we're doing behavioral stuff. And then I start thinking back to, how do I say this as anonymously as possible? I knew a fella <laughs> who, uh, who, who told me a story once about how he would go drop his father-in-law off at the prostitute's house that he would go to. And it was said very casually, this is in the 50s and 60s, so the idea that, oh, no, all of this just blew up with the internet, well, that's not true. There was always this disconnection, and there mm-hmm. were ways that it seems to have been accepted, even during the wholesome times. Uh, so so we've got this disconnection, but then I'm seeing these changes in the way it's talked about after it erupts with internet pornography and on chat rooms. There's all these these new ways Hookup apps too help, really help yeah, to hookup apps. put through fuel on the fire. Yeah. Right. So there's there's it's easier and more anonymous to self-soothe the broken heart. And then we start to see the shift to what's really going on. So how do you see this thread of both behaviors that have always been a part of the human condition and that all of a sudden we're starting to address it differently from any other point that I'm aware of in, in history? Sure. It's a big question, and I, I couldn't agree more. It's it's been part of the human condition since mm-hmm. Adam and Eve, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And yet, there are so many um, ways today that that are ways to access sex and sexual contact 
um, whether it be virtually or in person, that it's on steroids, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm really grateful myself that that I started my recovery before the internet. Yeah, yeah, and and so it's it's been very very complicated because the brain gets hijacked and we're learning more and more and more how how nowadays kids especially with the access to porn on on the internet and and different kinds of social media that is basically light porn itself um that that there's just so many images and it's just way too much for a child to process and Mm -hmm. so without going fully in that direction, what I, what I want to say to answer your question is that, yes, it's always been a part of our world, but today the access and the speed and the, the, the frequency that, that is available is just very insidious and, and, and Mm -hmm. super challenging. Um, Do you, do you think that's part of what necessitated a deeper answer? Because it seemed like as that became a reality, the deeper mm. exploration became the evolution. You know, I never thought of it that way, but I love the idea. I, I don't know for sure, but that sounds really great and possible because the challenge has gotten bigger and maybe we have risen to to address the issues in, in ways that we didn't before. So... I, I think there's something to that. I don't have any research or statistics on it, but I, I think uh, we're got just a theory making, there. We're making stuff up here, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I'm curious, Andrew, uh, what are the tools in your toolbox these days that, uh, as a therapist that you find mm-hmm. yourself uh, using with the greatest frequency and with the greatest effectiveness as you're helping people work toward long-term sobriety? from compulsive sexual behavior. Sure. And not just sobriety, but recovery, finding life. That's right. That's right. Which which is really the positive psychology approach, which is Mm -hmm. not looking at what's going wrong, but but instead what's going right. And Mm -hmm. um, one thing I want to say about this is that I'm always holding the, the hope for my clients and myself for that matter to integrate sex and intimacy in healthier ways, right? Mm-hmm. There's no perfection. It's not like putting the plug in the jug and mm-hmm. and giving up alcohol. This is like when we're talking about sex, food, gambling, these kinds of things, um, we're talking about having healthier relationships to mm-hmm. sex, healthier relationships to intimacy. So, you know, nowadays... I, I, I do a few things. So I, I have a lot of training in something called brain spotting, which is a long, that's probably another episode for yeah. us to talk about. But, but brain spotting is a somatic therapy and it's about the using the eyes as a, a way of, of really healing what was not able to be healed in the past. So if something happened to somebody, some, someone at some point, and it was just too much to process at the time, it gets stored in the subcortex. It gets stored on the shelf to be brought out again. So brain spotting is, is absolutely 
a, I believe, an elegant and respectful approach to healing those traumatic memories and experiences. So that's mm-hmm. probably my favorite and mm-hmm. um, go-to whenever um, someone is having trouble finding their way with words because brain spotting is not about necessarily a whole lot of words. It's much more mm-hmm. about uh, the body and the nervous system. So that's that's probably at the top of my list. I also am a big believer in attachment. And so I, I consider myself to be a relational therapist. And what I mean by that is I believe the relationship in the room is the core of the healing. And, and that by me being a consistent, emotionally reliable, hopefully um, containing kind of presence, boundaried mm-hmm. presence, that we get to have an experience that's different from any other relationship that my clients have had in the past. So that's the attachment piece, the connection piece. Mm-hmm. And and then the sexual health piece is really important to me. I don't know if it's necessarily tools per se, but it's the conversation about mm-hmm. sexual health. You know, I think we we understand mental health to some extent. We understand physical health, but how many of us really had quality sex education. And right. so it's not that I'm a, a sex educator with my clients, but I am really interested in exploring what their sexual blueprint has looked like and what they really want. You know, have they ever really been able to articulate what they want in terms of a sex life? Something that is yeah. satisfying and fun and pleasurable and liberating. So well you you are a sex educator because anyone that was <laughs> raised in the church first sex education was don't do it it's wrong until you're married but it's more leaning on the it's wrong then in school you're told you're going to get herpes or aids so that's pretty negative that's your next sex education and then when people find themselves in the weeds of compulsive behaviors now it's that was wrong and i need to figure out how to abstain so now it's another version of early church education and no there's not a lot of good conversations that make you walk away feeling like sex is awesome that's why this whole thing happened in the first place none of that would have been necessary if sex was not great and intimacy was not what i was created for mm-hmm so yeah, you're a sex educator. I'm I'm putting that moniker on you. But I mean, also, it sounds to me as though, in some ways, you're an intimacy coach. Is that a good description? That that sounds cooler. <laughs> I, 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 I think it it's sex and intimacy. Mm-hmm. And and thank you. I, I I actually appreciate that idea of of being an intimacy coach because. I had no idea what intimacy really was. I had a lot of longings as a kid, mm-hmm. and I, I continued to learn about what intimacy means in my life. But with my clients, I, again, I just want to know what what was it that worked? What was it that didn't work? What was their blueprint around intimacy? What did they witness uh, around mm-hmm. sex and intimacy? And so um, the fun really is kind of un- Un, or disentangling, I think that's mm-hmm. the way I look at it, disentangling what those areas in people's lives have looked like and to, and to really allow for a discussion, um, not only with me one-on-one, but I also have several groups. And, and so group work, by the way, is, is 
fantastic when it comes to uh, to really taking away the stigma and yes. and and also um, what I borrow from Brene Brown, which is shame resilience, yes. and, yeah. and, yeah. and 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 it's fantastic. I I, I mm-hmm. really really um, believe that those if those things if we can have more connection and less shame and more sexual health and more meaningful connection and purpose in life, well, we're, we're doing pretty damn well. Mm-hmm. Can, yeah. can, can we pause yeah. to revel and roll in the childhood leaf pile of you <laughs> talking about childhood longings? Because there was a point mm-hmm. where we were all innocent, and yet most of us had longings. My longings led me to deep relationships with the bra uh, models in the Sears magazine, but <laughs> it was still coming from this longing for a connection that is kind of a beautiful part of me. It was not the beginning of a downward spiral mm-hmm. into false intimacy. It was really a part of the beauty of how we were created. And mm-hmm. so talk to me about childhood longings and why that is not something that needs to be destroyed, but needs to be mm-hmm. rediscovered. That's right. Yeah. I, I, I sometimes talk about reclaiming our childhood mm-hmm. and longings often take shape in our imagination, mm-hmm. in our fantasies, in our desires and really in our interest in life there's there's something about longings that that are really about aliveness and about vitality and so i i think childhood longings if if i were to encapsulate it are are really a very very pure and innocent part of all of us right and and in its simplest form I think we look for folks that we can really trust and mm-hmm. respect and and that we can have some kind of um, hopefully fun and play with, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, 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 I think longings oftentimes somehow either get um, a bad rap or sometimes... Uh, especially grown men think, well, I can't have longings. That's, that's not Mm -hmm. okay for, for me to, to to have that. But when we break it down, it's, it's really about what makes us feel alive. And, Mm -hmm. um, I, I I couldn't agree more that it's, it's something that needs to be brought out more rather than, uh, set aside. Mm -hmm. There's your next book, the masculinity of yearning. (laughs) (laughs) I'll think about that. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, I am haunted by a line that Chris, Kurt Thompson uses. I don't know whether it's original with him. Uh, when he says that we all come into the world looking for someone who's looking for us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it's a longing for connection, for intimacy, and we want to be seen and we want to be appreciated. And we want that connection. And uh, if we reach the point where we somehow conclude that that longing is never going to be met, uh, that we're going to have to find a way uh, to satisfy the loneliness ourselves. Uh, I, it seems to me as though that's a that's a heartbreaking conclusion mm-hmm. to come to. Mm-hmm. 
I, yeah, go ahead. And then I, no, I thought it, about this. It's, it is heartbreaking. But the way I look at it is that it's twofold, right? We're always, I think, we know that we're biologically wired for connection and mm-hmm. for love and for belonging. So there's mm-hmm. always a part of us that is going to be searching for, for yes. those things. And this, this is really my growing edge. Recently, I was talking with my therapist about the pursuit of stillness because mm-hmm. I tend to be really busy and scheduled. And it's not so easy for me to just hang out and, and be quiet. You know, I do meditate mm-hmm. a little bit and I try and be consistent with my practice. But stillness is really not about loneliness or isolation as much as it's about solitude. And I'm really mm-hmm. trying to practice solitude more. So I think that's where it goes in both directions. It's not necessarily having to feel like you're the lone ranger out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. When I think about that heartbreak trauma piece, and I have a lot of trouble thinking of these things as trauma, and yet I carry it with me still. I so deeply wanted to be known and seen when I was young, to have someone ask what I thought. Mm-hmm. And I can remember a time in the seventh or eighth grade, I was in junior high, and there was a certain adult who was teaching something, and they went from three of my friends saying, if you wanted to know about football, you'd ask Bill. If you wanted to know about soccer, you'd ask Robert. You can see that this is all going very sportsy in my upbringing. Uh, Then he said something about another friend, and then he looked at me, and I saw him freeze because he couldn't think of what to say. He said, and if you want to know about and he's staring at me for the longest time and then says, tennis, you'd ask Aaron. Mm-hmm. And I thought, tennis? I've, I've played more sports than any of the people you just listed. <laughs> None of it was tennis at that time. I could play tennis with my dad. We did that a lot. So sure, I can tell you about tennis. But I also played music. And there's a million things you could have come up with. And you just in front of everyone said, I don't know the first damn thing about you even though I've known you for years. Hmm. And I realized in, in just the next few years how much I wanted to be known, how desperate I was. But mm-hmm. then I felt like, well, that's kind of pathetic. What a pathetic thing. I want to be known. Just do your thing and be okay with you. And that became the way I saw, like, that was a weak thing to want. And then hmm. I remember teaching through John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's on the way to the cross. And right in the middle, he says, this is my desire. And it's like, oh, pause. Son of God's like, this is what I want, my want. And he says that they would know you, Dad, and that they would know me. Hmm. And I remember weeping, thinking, wait, This is God's image in me that I deeply desire and need for someone to do that quote you said, Nate, that I need someone who's trying to find me. Mm -hmm. Because that's exactly what Jesus was saying. In the end, this is what I want. This Mm -hmm. is, I've prayed for everyone else. Now, this is my request as God. (laughs) And that was his request as God to be known. Mm -hmm. 
And then Paul echoes that in Philippians when he says, yeah, the only thing I want to do is know him in the power of his resurrection, mm-hmm. fellowship, such sufferings. Mm-hmm. I just want to know him. And it's like, you feel God's heart go, yes, you threw away all the religious stuff and this is the only thing that's left. Mm-hmm. So I deeply resonate with that idea of the broken heartedness of not being known and how much of my life after that was trying to figure out how to do life without needing that when I was supposed to need it. Mm-hmm. That's all I have to say about that. Oh, yeah, I do feel um, as though I am still uh, very awkward when it comes to intimacy. Hmm. Uh, I, you know, I feel as though I was a sitting duck for sex addiction because of that deep need for connection that was unmet and unacknowledged. Um, and now, you know, the desire is there deeply. And I do, I'm so grateful that I have as many connections, as many friends as I do. And my marriage has survived and Allie and I are best friends, but I still feel like I got three left feet when it <laughs> comes to intimacy. I just, <laughs> But the instincts just aren't there. It's it's an uphill climb. Um, are there? I so I in your role as intimacy coach. If you'll accept the role for a few minutes, mm-hmm. Andrew. You know what what kind of fundamentals do you teach guys like me? Mm. In a nutshell. <laughs> Okay. I think I think this is a much longer answer that we could talk about um, in detail. Mm-hmm. You know, in in its basic sense, I, I do believe that intimacy is about being fully yourself and being mm-hmm. fully myself. And what that means is it's stripping away the need to be liked. It's stripping away anything performative. It's mm-hmm. taking away that that feeling of, of having to make something happen and instead trying to be in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 sometimes being in the moment is super uncomfortable, right? But yeah. but I think what, <laughs> what, what <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I I think we forget that because many of us are are running around being busy and scheduled and mm-hmm. and, and 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 not pursuing stillness. And intimacy is is really about pursuing stillness, and mm. and so the way I, I talk, I have a couple men's groups, uh, men's process groups, and what we often talk about is is slowing down and asking yourself what's going on inside of me right now. You know, what are the thoughts, feelings, sensations, impulses, memories? What's happening inside of me at this very moment? And then we go further and say, well, how are you feeling toward Joe right now? Mm-hmm. Right? Joe said something to you. How did that land for you? And how, do, how are you feeling toward him? And all of that is very here and now coaching, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And which mm-hmm. is intimacy. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that, I believe, has to do with just giving yourself the opportunity to, to notice when you're more in the moment and when you're out of the moment, when you're able to check in with what's going on inside of you and when you're able to really notice what's, hap- what's happening with you towards another person. And, mm-hmm. and, and so intimacy and trust 
go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Intimacy and vulnerability go hand in hand. And because I ask lots of questions about the body, oftentimes I'll ask people, so right now, what are you noticing in, in your body? And if, if they say I'm feeling calm and peaceful, I'll say, oh, why don't you just notice that for a moment and just savor mm-hmm. that calm, peaceful feeling? And then I'll say, do you know why you're feeling calm and peaceful? And most of the time they won't know. And I'll say, well, it, it actually means you're trusting me in this moment and you're trusting your environment. Something is allowing your body to relax. And so there's a lot of tentacles to this question, Mm -hmm. obviously, Mm -hmm. but but that's where I start. I think that would be the the starting point. Ah, man, I would like I I would like the longer version of that, Nate, because I immediately want to ask when you're in those situations, because you and I react differently to our awkwardness. Mm-hmm. And I think your version gains you better yields because you get more quiet and people just think, oh, what a nice guy. He's such a good listener. <laughs> when, when you might feel awkward, where I might just talk more and they're like, Does, is this guy even listening to me? What an asshole. Uh, <laughs> so, so so I would, oh, that would be a great comment where we don't have enough time for it, but I want, yeah. I want to explore what's happening in your body uh, and see where the overlaps are for two people that, outwardly exhibit the exact opposite behaviors with the exact same feelings. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. See, we're fascinating clients, Andrew. I love it. I (laughs) I feel like I'm in session right now. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to add briefly because I I think it's important to, to mention the nervous system. So when we're feeling regulated, right, when we're feeling Mm -hmm. regulated, we're also feeling resilient and resourceful and on a really good day, buoyant, right? Mm-hmm. Don't have to feel buoyant all the time. But that zone, that regulated zone, is really the optimal place to, to live all the time. But okay, as, can you as, can you before you go to the next part, yeah. can you define every one of those words? <laughs> when I feel <laughs> yeah. regulated, yes. Okay, regulated so I, meaning I, I, I'm going to actually try and bunch them together because okay. I I'm I'll probably stumble over trying to to define all of them separately. What I'm really talking about is when you feel most like yourself, mm-hmm. right? Just kind just of like what you were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comfortable with yourself, at peace with yourself. That there's a calm, peaceful feeling that that you're able to recognize. It's very subjective. Nobody else can tell you that you're feeling more more like yourself. Mm-hmm. But that's really a state of regulation and and resourcefulness goes along with it because when we're feeling regulated we feel like oh we have choices and we we feel like we mm-hmm. can really pursue things that are a good fit for us or or that we can explore and, and discover um so what is I like, what is I, what does buoyancy feel like <laughs> tell well, me buoyancy, more about- buoyancy yeah. is is more like if you think about a boat Mm-hmm. That's up on on the water. That even when there's big waves, it's still able to to find its balance. And even mm-hmm. when there's small waves, it's just kind of cool. And 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 you get to feel that sense of oh, I'm I'm up on top of the water. I'm not going to drown. I'm not going to fall over. I'm I'm just able to stay buoyant. I'm not so, anxious. I'm just rolling with it, and rolling I feel comfortable that I will continue to roll with it. Exactly. Okay, so that's regulated. Go on. Yeah. Right. So. 
dysregulation is is something we all do. We either up-regulate or we down-regulate. And up-regulation are things like irritability, rage, um, hypervigilance, mm. panic, right? That's when the, kind of like when the accelerator is is on and it's stuck mm. on. And and we all go there, right? It's, it's just part of, of being human. And then on the other side of that, down regulation is um, when it feels like the brake is on inside of us. And that's when we feel depression, disconnection. We feel shut down, sometimes even frozen. Um, and again, the, the, there's no problem really with being dysregulated. But there's a problem if we're not attending to it, because if we're dysregulated and we don't know that we're dysregulated, there's there's not a whole lot we can do. But if we have the awareness that we're either up or down regulated, then we have more information and we can say, huh, what 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 kind of support do I need right now to to get more regulated? Do I need to call my sponsor? Do I need to mm-hmm. schedule an extra therapy session? Do I need to pray? For an extended period of time, what what are those resources? How can I be resourceful and find my way back to a more regulated state more efficiently? And both of those, if the opposite of addiction is connection, both of those versions of dysregulation you just described are intimacy killers because one is aggressive towards the people around us, so they'll feel like they have to withdraw to protect themselves, and the other is withdrawal techniques or behaviors that make people feel like we don't care about them. And so we're going to get responses that make us feel like there's no intimacy because they're responding to our dysregulation. And pretty soon we're in the danger zone for having to find false intimacy to replace what is being broken. That's spot on. Exactly. Yeah. So regulation is important, not just for myself, but for the relationships I have in my life. Correct. Mm -hmm. Well, Andrew, I've got to say, I absolutely love the title of uh, of your book. It's not about the sex. That's great. <laughs> it's not about the sex, moving from isolation to intimacy after sexual addiction. The author we've been talking to today is Andrew Suskind. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us and our listeners, Andrew. It's absolutely my pleasure. And if, if I can just make another little plug, Please. Um, I am working on the companion workbook for the original book. And oh. I've had a lot of folks ask me for things they can do, right? Mm-hmm. Action steps. And so I'm, I'm in the process of putting that together. I'm hoping maybe by the end of next year, we'll see. And um, mm. just wanted to mention that as well. Where, where do people k- keep up with you and where you're at in these projects and what's happening? Is there a website or place they can go to? Sure. The, the book, like many books, uh, the easiest way is through Amazon. And so that's available there. Um, if you're interested in my podcast or my blog or anything going on in my practice, or if I can be a resource to you from Los Angeles. I've been here a long time and know a lot of people. Uh, My website is westsidetherapist.com. That's all one word, singular, westsidetherapist. Nice. Beautiful, beautiful. 
Well, listeners, we will be right back here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. And we are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. That was fun. I want to yeah. hang out with Andrew next time I'm in the Los Angeles area. He's just yeah, guy to hang out with. You know what? He does strike me as a guy. I mean, he's he's low key. He just he he feels friendly and he feels safe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very and good. I, and I, I think we both responded. We started we started getting real personal with Andrew there. Uh, yeah, I know. The end. I, I know. Yeah, he just kind of pulled it out of us without doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the sign of a great therapist right there. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do think that that was an interesting thread of a thought. Um, mm-hmm. because I, I wonder what people think you must feel like going into a social situation. Oh, you can be comfortable on stage. You must be comfortable, yeah, in all these no, other no, aspects no, 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 of no, 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 social no. Yeah, situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which anyone who's been on stage knows that that can be the most beautifully connected and disconnected place all at the same time. Oh, it certainly can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easier for me to have a relationship with a thousand people than with one. But the weird thing is, lest that seem disingenuous it's not Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i I mean i just think about playing music and especially worship music that Mm -hmm. because i spent more of my musical worshipful life on a stage than sitting in a pew i would feel more comfortable being open and vulnerable and very real if i was on the stage and i would feel very uncomfortable in a pew in a pew Mm -hmm. i would feel or watching me and it felt uh-huh. uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. it's it's a weird it's a weird dynamic and it doesn't mean that one is disingenuous. Right. It yeah. just means it's a whole different thing that we learn to live in and live with and then we get thrust into other situations and we can have weird feelings. Yeah. That's yeah, why absolutely. that's why I always loved working with Dane. He's such a social butterfly and so good with those things. And I okay, get, he was I your would, he was your co-pastor at Vintage. Yeah, a longtime friend. You yeah. guys did a lot of things together. Yeah, yeah, he's my wingman. I would go cook things, or I would be serving things. Like, give me something to do because I want to uh-huh. be here. Right. Yeah. But I don't feel comfortable doing what he was gifted to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and so that's mm-hmm. why I'd usually go find something to <laughs> serve with. Wasn't okay. wasn't because I'm serving hearted. It's just a place for me to, <laughs> to hide while still being present. Yeah. Yeah, we're confused people. Well, we you are. can tell us how you're confused people by sending us a note, a question, a thought to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know when this is going to be posted, so we don't have any announcements because no, they'll be irrelevant. No. <laughs> but, uh, We've had a busy week here uh, on the Pirate Monk podcast. We have recorded three episodes this week, and yet I haven't gotten bored. I've been I've been entranced by every guest. These have been great conversations. It's been a great week. Yes, indeed. 
and mm-hmm. and tonight we get to keep going or I get to keep going. Obviously this tells when we're doing this particular one, but today is the virtual the virtual retreat is happening. So we're in oh, yeah. early Kicking December here and so mm-hmm. there's going to be more conversations and it's going to be a busy two days of hanging with hanging with the boys. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Well, I guess it's that's it for this uh, this episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we are your pals. We really are. Well, I don't know. Are we really, Aaron? Well, the people that I meet that are friends of the podcast are my pals. Yes, that's right. Exactly. We are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yo! The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.